0: Welcome to another episode of Invited In, a podcast connecting the global family of Samaritan's Purse. Today, we have a special guest. Skip Heitzik recently um, visited the international headquarters and spoke to the staff at Devotions. And I would love for you to hear his message. He and his wife, Lenya, have been longtime friends of, of Jane and Franklin. He serves on the board of Samaritan's Purse. He is the senior pastor of Calvary Church in Albuquerque, And he's written several books, but his most recent is You Can Understand the Book of Revelation. And today he teaches from that book. And I hope you're challenged and inspired by hearing from the book of Revelation. Here's Skip.
1: Thank you. Um, Good morning. I hope you have been praying, and I'm sure you have, uh, for um, the Decision America tour. Um, I'm hearing great reports of between eight, nine, and 14,000 people a night coming to hear the gospel, and uh, uh, reports of 600, 700 a night responding in faith to Christ. So so pray for that. Uh, I came to faith in Christ through Franklin's father, Dr. Graham. And so I have a special heart in my organization for the Billy Graham Association and Samaritan's Purse I have been on the board for years, and I'll just say from a board member's perspective, I never cease to be amazed at the quality of individual that works with Samaritan's Purse, and the quality of work that is done around the world. And I get to visit them, and I'm always amazed at, at the, not only the high caliber, but the integrity that the organization has at every level. So I want you just to hear that from uh, a board member, that uh, you are part of a wonderful organization that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, God's hand of blessing is on it. So um, thank you for what you do. Uh, This morning, I hope you brought a Bible. We're gonna be in the book of Revelation. Of course, we're not gonna cover the whole book of Revelation. This is a devotional. But we're gonna look at some verses in the first chapter Uh, of Revelation. Uh, Somebody once said we should all be concerned about the future because we're gonna have to spend the rest of our lives there. And I have noted that people are concerned about their future, they're fascinated with trying to predict the future. From ancient times when people were reading omens or looking at the stars or in modern times, where people read their horoscopes or get their palms read. They want to find out what's going to happen in their future. Uh, Songwriters will theme their songs with future themes. I can think all the way back to Tomorrow Never Knows by The Beatles, or Song for a Future Generation by the B-52s, or Welcome to the Future by Brad Paisley. But my all-time favorite song of that genre see if any of you remember this, in the year 2525. <laughs> anybody remember who wrote that? Zagar and Evans. That goes way, way back. At the end of every year, pundits, prognosticators, blog writers will start trying to predict in their writings what's going to happen in the coming year, who's going to win the election, what's going to happen to the stock market, what's gonna happen to vegetable prices in your market, who's gonna win the Oscars, everybody's trying to predict what's gonna happen that year. Most of these predictions are based on trends or personal bias or just their own guess. Abraham Lincoln once noted, the best thing about the future is it comes only one day at a time. Jesus said not to even worry about tomorrow that it'll take care of itself, that you just serve him today and trust him today and he'll take care of the future. But we do wonder. We wonder what's next. We wonder what's next for our nation. We wonder what's next for our world. And we wonder if current events play into end time prophecy. I think every generation has done that. And I think that books have been written about the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I just have to say we need to be very careful about that because uh, many times uh, in church history, uh, the church has egg on its face because they make crazy predictions. I don't know if any of you remember 88 reasons why Jesus should come back in 1988, and then he never came back, so it was 89 reasons why he's going to make it in 89, and they're always trying to pinpoint when he's going to come. There was a a minister back in 1870, one of my favorite stories. He was visiting a college president of a small denominational college. And um, the minister visiting his friend said that he believed the Bible predicted that nothing else could be invented, which is an outlandish thing. And the college president said, that's weird, I, I don't think the Bible says that. He goes, in fact, I predict within 50 years, men will be able to fly through the air like birds. And the minister stood up and said, you better be careful what you're saying. That, that could be considered blasphemy because flight is only reserved for the angels. And uh, the, the ironic thing about that minister, his name was Milton Wright. And he had two boys. Wilbur and Orville Wright, who within 30 years were flying an airplane. So every time we get on an airplane and fly, we testify that Milton Wright was dead wrong. But his friend, the college president, was. Right. He was correct. He could he could see into the future that people are going to be flying. It did not seem to make sense at the time. It sounded outlandish at the time, but it was true. When John wrote the book of Revelation, the things he wrote about seemed outlandish, impossible. But it's the word of God and Everything in this book, including the book of Revelation, is true. Now, John wrote this book when he was an old man. He was in his mid-90s. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos, 30 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, um, out in the Aegean Sea. It was a a colony. He was put there by uh, the emperor Domitian, who considered Christianity Christianity to be a religious cult. And so he was there isolated, and he received a vision from God. So the vision, I'm not going to read all of the first chapter, but the first few verses give us some unique features about the book of Revelation. In verse 1, it begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The first unique feature about the book of Revelation is that it is a prophecy. It predicts the future. Five times, this book is called a prophecy. It is not an allegory. Uh, It is not a fantasy. It is not poetry. It is not legendary prose. It has a predictive element in it, and it calls itself prophecy. It contains details about the end of days. In fact, there are more details in the book of Revelation about the end times and the coming of Christ than any other book in the Bible. The book amplifies in great detail a a tribulation period coming on the earth that will last seven years, a final uh, confrontation of nations that will take place staged in the Middle East, the arrival of the figure known as the Antichrist, the uh, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ after his second coming, and the eternal state. All of those are written about in this book. And yet, A lot of people are afraid to read it because they're afraid of prophecy in general. They don't like to think about it. I've had people say, you know, studying prophecy is such a distraction from the reality of life. You should know that Martin Luther didn't like this book. Martin Luther did not consider the book of Revelation to be scripture. And John Calvin, who wrote commentaries on all the New Testament books, wrote, wrote, Uh, commentaries on every book except one. And that's the book of Revelation. Now, uh, to be fair, when they were alive, these events written about in this book seemed hardly possible. Fast forward to our day and age, the events you read about in this book seem highly possible. Now, I would just say, don't be afraid of prophecy, and here's why. One-fourth of your Bible is prophecy. So if you're afraid of prophecy, if you want to not ever read any prophetic literature, you have to essentially take out of your Bible one-fourth of it. A lot of your Bible would be unread if you don't read prophecy. And here's a way to look at prophecy. Biblical prophecy is simply a part of one of God's characteristics called omniscience. God knows everything. God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. And being omniscient and knowing all things, he knows all future things and has let us in on what some of those things are because he knows the end from the beginning. In fact, God brings this up as the testimony to why he is different from all the false gods and goddesses of other nations. In Isaiah chapter 41, The Lord speaking through that prophet said, can your idols make such claims as these? Let them come and show what they can do, says the Lord, the King of Israel. Let them try to tell us what the future holds. If you are gods, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. So here is God predicting what's coming in the days ahead and saying to the false gods and goddesses, can you pull that off? You can't predict the future. I am God, and one of the ways I show that is that I predict the future. Every tomorrow has two handles, the handle of faith and the handle of anxiety. When you study prophecy, it moves you toward grabbing the hand, not of anxiety, but the hand of faith. It's one of God's trademarks. He knows everything, and he predicts in great detail, in some cases, things before they happen. Now, there's a special aspect to the prophecy of the book of Revelation, and that is uh, it is given in signs. It is highly symbolic. Uh, you who have, are familiar with the book of Revelation, you have um, all sorts of symbols and signs like lampstands and trumpets and beasts and bowls. Um, look at verse 1. And you'll notice it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it. The word signified is a word that means to render something in signs or render something in symbols. That's, that's why we find it because he announces this is how you're going to get this prophecy. It's going to be signified to you. So we have symbols through it. And we wonder why the symbolic language. I think the symbolic language of the book of Revelation serves a couple of purposes. Number one, uh, symbols, signs, transcend culture and language. So no matter when you read the book of Revelation, it's gonna have uh, an impact on us emotionally that other forms of literature wouldn't have, number one. Number two, Uh, when the Roman government was filtering through all the documents of the early church trying to figure out reasons to arrest them, they would get to a document like the book of Revelation and they wouldn't make much sense of it. And they would see that not as a threat, but this is kooky, it's crazy, who cares about this? However, 2,000 years ago, somebody in the church reading the document of the book of Revelation would understand many of these symbols because they were familiar with the Old Testament. And here's an interesting feature. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 360 of those 404 verses either quote or point back to or allude to um, symbols or signs or scriptures from the Old Testament. So a person who is familiar with Old Testament literature, the book of Revelation, makes more sense. Now, he says here that the events in this book must shortly take place. Shortly take place. And if you are um, reading that and thinking, well, it's been 2,000 years since it was written, what does he mean by shortly take place? Uh, Maybe he should put a different word there, like eventually take place. The word shortly is a word that we get our word tachometer from. Entakai is the word, the two words. Entakai means briefly, in a brief period of time. It's not going to happen like in five years as much as once the events start happening, they're going to have a velocity to them so they'll take place within a very short period of time. Like stacking up dominoes, you push one down and the next one falls and the next one and the next one and the next one. So these events happen in rapid, rapid succession. So there's the emergence of the Antichrist and the tribulation period and Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ, just rapid fire one after the other. So this book predicts the future. Second, this book promises a blessing. Verse three, it's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing like this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Seven times in the book of Revelation, this beatitude shows up, blessed. The book opens with it and closes with it. The two bookends are a blessing is promised to those who read and keep the book. Now the word blessed means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. Uh, if um, If you want to avoid the book of Revelation, you are robbing yourself of a certain amount of joy that is promised to those who will read, who will hear, and who will keep. Oh, how happy. You're saying, Skip, have you ever read the book of Revelation? You don't get happy reading the book of Revelation. It's about catastrophes. It's about destruction. It's about natural disasters. My answer, keep reading. Get to the very end, because the more you read and make it all the way through, there is incredible joy. It will reveal God's plan for your future and for the future of the world. Because when you get to the end, the end says we win. And the reason we win is because Jesus Christ wins. And when Jesus Christ wins, you also read that the devil loses. In fact, he's the biggest loser in the book. He is bound for a thousand years and he is tormented forever. Can't wait for that. I want front row seats for that event, don't you? Lewis Talbot wrote The devil has turned thousands of people away from this portion of God's word. He does not want anyone to read a book that tells of his being cast out of heaven nor is he anxious for us to read of the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. The more you study the book of Revelation, the more you understand why Satan fights so hard to keep God's people away from it. So it promises a blessing. Third, this book portrays a person. That's really the big takeaway of the book of Revelation. Isn't that you find tidbits on end time prophecy or how long the tribulation is or who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse or uh, the two witnesses, who are they really gonna be in the future? It says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, apocalypsis we get our word apocalypse from that. Unfortunately, our English term apocalypse has negative connotations. It's a symbol for catastrophe. If you look up apocalypse in the dictionary, the dictionary definition is the complete final destruction of the world. That is not the original meaning of the word. The word apocalypse, apocalypses means an unveiling, a revealing, a making clear, something that has been hidden before. It is used 18 times in the New Testament, and when it speaks of a person, it always means to become visible, to become visible. Even for John the Apostle, who only knew Jesus in his earthly form as the 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 Galilean that he followed around for three and a half years, he's gonna get a revelation of Jesus Christ in his glorified form that he did not know up to that point. So it is is about a person, it pictures Jesus Christ. Sure, there are um, facts about the future tribulation and the kingdom age and the eternal state, but first and foremost, it's about Jesus Christ. So picture a statue in front of City Hall Uh, The artist is there to discuss what he made and why. The mayor is there to dedicate it, and at the right time after the band plays, they grab the sheet and they unveil the statue. Think of the book of Revelation like that. God is unveiling Jesus Christ. He is saying, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my son, who will rule and reign over the entire earth. If you think about it, you can summarize the entire Bible by saying the whole Bible is about one person and two events. That's the irreducible minimum of all of Scripture. One person, two events. It's about Jesus Christ. He's the one person. And it's about two events. His first coming to deal with sin, his second coming to rule and reign with those who have been cleansed from sin. And the book of Revelation is that capstone. It's interesting that Martin Luther said of the book of Revelation, my spirit cannot adapt itself to this book. And a sufficient reason why is I do not esteem it highly that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in it. Now, I I have to say with, uh, with all humility, Martin, you were right about the Reformation, but you're wrong about the Revelation. You were spot-on about the Great Reformation. Thank you for that. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, you couldn't be more wrong. You, Jesus is all over this book. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus is superintending and evaluating his church. He's giving them report cards. In chapter 4 and 5, he is seen in heaven as the glorified Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In chapters 6 through 18, Jesus is revealed as the judge of all the earth. In chapter 19, he's the returning king of kings and lord of lords. In chapter 20, he is seen reigning on the earth as the bridegroom with his bride, the church. And in chapters 21 and 22, he is described as illuminating heaven itself, the eternal state and the new Jerusalem. So he's all over the place in the book. And I mentioned John the Apostle, who wrote this book, who knew Jesus in his earthly form, in chapter 1, gets a vision of the glorified Christ. I want you to look at just some of those verses. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, first and last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands And in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the Son of Man clothed with the garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Do you realize that this is the only description we have of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture? We don't know what he looked like in his earthly form. He's never described. Artists have tried to depict what he may have looked like, but this is the only physical description we get as John sees him in his glorified state. Now, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That could mean it was on Sunday, the Lord's day. Uh, Funny, I was on the island of Patmos a few years back. It happened to be on a Sunday, and I thought of this verse. I said, well, I'm here on the Lord's day as well. But here's another thought. One way to translate this may be, I was in the spirit unto the day of the Lord meaning I was transported into the future all the way to the coming day of the Lord. And, and he writes all of the events that will be staged up unto that point. He's catapulted forward. He says he was in the spirit, a key phrase found four times in the book. Every time you see the phrase in the spirit, it uh, ushers in a whole new section of the book. So I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now he sees this vision of Jesus, this glorified Jesus, and Jesus is seen throughout the rest of the book. If you're an Old Testament student, you know that this vision is similar to the vision in Daniel chapter seven of the Son of Man that he sees and the Ancient of Days. And all of the symbolism could be unraveled, but we don't have time for that. Enough to say this book predicts the future, promises a blessing, portrays a person, and fourth and finally, it produces a response. It produces a response. What is the response of seeing the Lord Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation? Here's the proper response. Verse 17 of chapter 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, But he laid his hand on me, his right hand on me, and said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This experience of seeing Jesus revealed changed this old man, John the Apostle. It humbled him. It flattened him. It was overwhelming to him. You remember six decades before this when John was with Peter and James and Jesus took them to a high mountain and was transfigured before them, right? He told some of his disciples, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come. Then he was transfigured. They saw him in his glory. Same thing happened. It says the disciples fell on their faces. This is the appropriate response in studying the book of Revelation. This book should lead us to worship. It should lead us to be face down before the Lord. Too many people speak of standing on their feet, their own two feet, when we need to fall at his feet. And the book of Revelation will take you there. Even when it comes to the future, and I would say especially as it comes to the future, and those of you in this organization that have to deal with geopolitical changes and responses to disasters, and you know the worst of the worst that can happen to uh, groups of people around the world. Corey Ten Boom once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. I've always loved that. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And as you see Jesus Christ portrayed in this book and you see how God announces what is going to come in the future, you know that it's all in his hands. He controls it. He's sovereign. I hope it leads us all to fully trust our lives to that same God. Because it might take us by surprise. It might take those people that we serve by surprise. It never takes God by surprise, ever, That's how sovereign God is. In the British Museum, there's a map, a Mariner's map from 1525. And what's interesting about the map is it is a sketch drawing of the coastline of North America. The waters and the coastline of North America. The mapmaker, the cartographer, wrote um, letters, wrote words, notes, on areas that were not yet explored. And in those areas not yet explored, he wrote words like, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, here be dragons. (laughs) In the 1800s, the British explorer, Sir John Franklin, got a hold of the map, crossed out those words, and wrote across the top of the map, here is God. Here is God. You can look at your future, and you can look at all the events this book predicts, as catastrophic as they are, and right over the top, here is God. I think some people desperately need the book of Revelation. They need it. They need the unveiled, glorified Christ presented, because too many people are still stuck on the little Jesus in the manger or the Jesus on the cross as the victim. They need to see the full-orbed Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords and presented in all of his glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, Do you know what your chances are of winning the lottery? They're pretty slim. Ever wonder why do people buy lottery tickets? You say, well, so they can win the lottery. Well, you have a greater chance of being struck by an asteroid (laughs) than getting a winning ticket to the lottery. You have a 286-time greater chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. So why do people buy tickets? There's an easy answer to this. A clerk who sells tickets at a store was asked, why do you think people buy so many tickets? He said, I can answer that. Hope, hope. They want hope. They're buying $2 worth of hope. They buy a ticket. Their first number is red. They go, oh, I have that number. The second number is red. I have that number. Third number is red. I have that number. But then as the numbers keep reading, they lose that hope. But for the first few numbers, they have hope. He goes, they're buying Hope. The Bible talks about the blessed hope. Not $2 worth of hope. The blessed hope. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This book announces and depicts that in its fullness. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the hope that we have who follow Christ. Lord, he is, he is why we do what we do. It is Jesus who motivates us in all of the works of this organization. He is what get, gets us out of bed in the morning, that we can serve the living Christ I pray, Lord, that we would uh, just keep in mind that there is one person and two events. It's always about Jesus. He came once, he's coming again. And as we live between those two comings, uh, Lord, I pray that we would live with great hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me share your morning with you today.
0: I hope you enjoyed hearing from Skip Heitzig today. I know I'm always personally challenged and I walk away um, deeper in my faith when I hear him preach. Our goal in sharing these devotions um, is to unify the families and the staff. As the staff hears from these devotions um, each day, um, my hope and my prayer is that the families can feel equipped and unified hearing the same teaching from time to time. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to sharing another episode soon.